Thank you very much for attending uh, this evening. Very nice to see you all again. Some familiar faces, some less familiar. Well, most of you are pretty familiar faces. This is our last uh, seminar of the term. We will have some more events uh, next term. And of course, um, the uh, annual Canadian Studies Conference, which will be early July, uh, which will be on... Um, uh, Canada, well, I haven't quite decided a title for it, but Canadians in Britain during the First World War, uh, the, the last kind of swan song of the First World War. Um, I'm also hoping to have a paper on the League of Nations as well, Canada and the League of Nations. Um, anyway, this evening, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Eleanor Bird, Ellie Bird, who's an honorary research fellow at Lancaster University where she's a 19th century history fellow using GIS technology to explore representations of nature and Canada in slave uh, narratives. She did her undergraduate degree in history and English at Keele University and then her PhD was on Canada and slavery in print, 1789 to 1889 uh, at the University of Sheffield, uh, just last August, so very recent, still uh, enjoying the relief of it, I'm sure. Uh, and that PhD looked at how Canada's self-image uh, as an anti-slavery haven uh, has developed across newspapers and slave narratives at that time, situating Canada within a black Atlantic and abolition print history. And she tells me she's just in the process, obviously, of uh, beginning to submit articles and so on. And she's, apart from that, got a strong interest in public engagement work, including, very intriguingly, uh, an historical cake-making evening. May <laughs> ask for a demonstration of that later. Uh, she's written various blogs for the British Library, um, uh, as well as holding a, a research fellowship with the Echo Centre and at the uh, Nova Scotia Museum. Uh, so please uh, join me in welcoming Ellie as she talks about Canada and slavery in Lower Canada newspapers, 1789-93. The response of the provinces that would become Canada to the wider transatlantic abolition context is little explored for both the 18th and 19th century. Canada's engagement with international slave trade debates and its connection to the broader transatlantic context during the 18th century is overlooked. Recent work by J.R. Oldfield has looked at the information highway of abolitionist print that connected the first organisations established from 1775 to campaign for the abolition of the slave trade in London, Paris, New York and Pennsylvania arguing that they were linked and part of an international movement, but Canada has not been included as part of that highway. British abolitionists who played an influential role in Canada in the 18th century, such as John Grave Simcoe and John Clarkson, have been little explored in their Canadian context, and this is despite the fact that their letter networks connected them to the wider British anti-slavery movement and better-known abolitionists such as William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson, and also to those influential in shaping British abolitionist legislation, such as Henry Dundas. 
anti-slavery print circulated widely in the Atlantic world in newspapers. For example, the anti-slavery poem, The Negro's Complaint, written by the British poet William Cooper, had wide circulation in newspapers across England till it travelled almost over the whole island. But it was also printed widely in the English-speaking world, for example, in parts of the United States, and as, as is far less well-known in the province of Quebec. This paper examines two newspapers in Lower Canada, the Quebec Gazette and the Montreal Gazette. During the most multivocal period of these newspapers' responses to slavery in Canada and in the wider Americas, it will introduce the two newspapers and briefly discusses the runaway slave advertisements for enslaved people in Lower Canada printed in the newspapers as part of a wider print culture in the Americas. Then it provides a general overview that argues during the period 1789 to 1793, the two newspaper editors crafted a local anti-slave trade sentiment through reprinting materials from the international slave trade debate. And then it will discuss three examples of this in the two newspapers. By reading the newspapers holistically and drawing on research which has involved reading them cover to cover, it argues that runaway slave advertisements and an anti-slave trade sentiment were simultaneously present in Lower Canada's newspapers, showing Canada's connection to what Oldfield terms the information highway of the international abolition movement during a period of slavery in Canada. The Quebec Gazette was the first newspaper established in Lower Canada. It was founded by William Brown and Thomas Gilmore between 1763 and 1764 and printed in Quebec. The first issue was published in June 1764 and Brown and Gilmore ran the newspaper together until Gilmore's death in 1773. William Brown was born in Scotland in 1737 and he lived in America with his mother's relatives from around the age of 15. Brown studied at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, and he had experience of running a bookshop in Philadelphia and setting up a printing shop in Barbados, where he lived for two years before being attracted to the prospects of establishing the first newspaper in Quebec. Samuel Nielsen took charge of the Quebec Gazette on the 22nd of March 1789, following his uncle William Brown's sudden death and he ran the newspaper between 1789 and 1793 until his own death on the 12th of January 1793. Nielsen was born in Scotland and had moved to Quebec in 1785. Following Samuel Nielsen's death, Alexander Spark managed the newspaper on behalf of Samuel Nielsen's younger brother, John Nielsen. Spark was a Presbyterian minister at the Scotch Church in Quebec, and Samuel Nielsen had been a member of his congregation. Spark was in charge of the newspaper until 1796, when John Nielsen took over the running of the Quebec Gazette. The Quebec Gazette was published weekly, and it was usually six pages in length, including a two-page supplement section largely filled with advertisements and notices. It was a bilingual newspaper, with each page divided into two columns, with English on the left and a translation in French appearing next to it on the right, in the right column. The newspaper tended to be dominated by news of foreign affairs in Britain, America and France, as well as those in European colonies like Saint-Domingue. The Montreal Gazette was owned and printed by Fleury Meple in Montreal, 
Mepler was the first French printer in Canada and the first printer in Montreal. He was born in France in 1794. He set up a printing shop in London in 1773 and travelled to Philadelphia the following year before setting out for the province of Quebec in 1775. Mepler attempted to set up a newspaper in Montreal in French to aid the American revolutionary presence following the capture of Montreal in 1775 by Richard Montgomery. He received funds and support from the Continental Congress to establish his newspaper, but he was unable to carry out his plans before the revolutionary presence dissipated on the 15th of June 1775. Mepler ran La Gazette, a newspaper in French edited by Valentin Jontat for a year before being imprisoned because of its content between 1779 and 1782. Mepler established the Montreal Gazette in 1785 and he ran this until his death in January 1794. Marcel Trudel notes that Mepler, like his contemporary William Brown at the Quebec Gazette, owned an enslaved person who worked at his newspaper. Claude Galano notes that it's unlikely that Mepler was the editor of the Montreal Gazette, which was probably edited by Valentin Jonta until 1787. However, Mepler was a skilled printer, and it is likely that he was involved in fashioning the Montreal Gazette in this capacity, and as its owner, he would have taken overall responsibility for the content of the newspaper. The Montreal Gazette was a bilingual newspaper, and it was published weekly. Similarly to the Quebec Gazette, it was largely made up of international news items printed wholesale or summarised within the paper. In its founding proposals, printed in the second issue, the Montreal Gazette says it will be dominated by reports on European and American affairs, as well as inviting readers to contribute their own letters and articles free of charge. It informs its readers of the cost of inserting informations or advertisements as costing one Spanish dollar for one or two dollars for three. The Montreal Gazette gives regular updates on political affairs from a range of European cities, including London, Paris, Lisbon, Stockholm and Rome. But during the period under study here, the newspaper is largely <coughs> dominated by news from France, the West Indies, America and Britain. An advertisement in the Montreal Gazette addresses subscribers in Quebec, Trois-Rivières and Montreal, and this identifies the residents of these three urban centres in Lower Canada as the likely readership. The Montreal Gazette and the Quebec Gazette were part of a thriving 18th century newspaper print trade with hubs in Lower Canada and Nova Scotia, and newspapers were a key part of local print culture. The Quebec Gazette and the Montreal Gazette are two of the longest-running and successful newspapers in Lower Canada in this period. There were no newspapers in New France, so there is an absence of the enslavement of First Nations people that dominated under the French before 1763 that Brett Rushworth examines in Lower, in Lower Canada's newspapers. Looking at the newspapers published in Quebec, Frank McKay counts a total of 100 advertisements selling enslaved people and runaway slave advertisements that were printed across five Lower Canadian newspapers between 1765 and 1810. He identifies that the Quebec Gazette printed by far the most, a total of 73, whereas the Montreal Gazette printed 18 and the Quebec Herald published seven, while two other newspapers, the Mercury and the Current, published one apiece. 
The runaway slave advertisements printed in 18th century Canadian newspapers are similar to those printed in newspapers across the Americas, for example, in Pennsylvania, South Carolina and Jamaica. Their language and structure is similar to those printed across the Americas. For example, they include long descriptions of the clothing that enslaved people were wearing and their appearance when they ran away. The advertisements focus heavily on the physical descriptions of enslaved people, but they also reveal some clues about the personalities and perspectives of enslaved people. They are written in the voice of the slave master wishing to retrieve what they saw as their property, and they reveal their perceived reality of enslaved people. But the advertisements also contain clues about how enslaved people ran away and the interior lives of slaves. Scholars have noted that runaway slave advertisements show the agency of enslaved people and their resistance to slavery, and this reading can similarly be applied to the Canadian advertisements. David Wallstreicher argues, looking at runaway slave advertisements printed in newspapers in the mid-Atlantic American colonies during the 18th century, that runaway slave advertisements show the self-fashioning of enslaved people when they ran away. He notes that when they ran away, enslaved people performed their identities as free men by using aspects such as clothing, voices, and by developing stories. He argues this was possible in a context of racial fluidity and a wider context of unfree labour in Pennsylvania and the mid-Atlantic colonies in America, and in a period before race had become the fixed and essentialist identity that it would become in the 19th century. The similarity in language between the Canadian runaway advertisements and those in the Americas suggests that enslaved people in Canada also performed their free identities when they ran away. This is reflected in the description of the runaway slave performing an identity as a free man that appeared in runaway slave advertisements in Canada and the wider Americas. For example, in one advertisement printed in South Carolina, the former slave master states, I suppose he will endeavour to pass for a free man. Similarly, advertisements printed in Lower Canada hinted that the runaway slave would probably perform an identity as a free man. In one advertisement printed in the Quebec Gazette, the former master states that the runaway Pascal Puro calls himself a free man. In 18th century Canada and the wider Americas, runaway slaves fashioned free identities and performed their free status as a way of aiding their escape. The similarities in the language between the Canadian slave advertisements and those printed in the wider Americas also suggest they were part of the same genre. The language in the Canadian advertisements was not unique to Canada, and this reflects that these texts were part of a wider print network. Examining the newspapers over a longer period shows that the years 1789 to 1793 saw the most multivocal period of the newspaper's handling of slavery. There's a continuity in the number of runaway slave advertisements printed during these years, but a marked increase in the anti-slave trade materials printed in the newspapers. There were no abolitionist texts in two earlier periods of the Quebec Gazette whilst William Brown was editor, January 1777 to January 1779 and January 1788 to March 1789. Between March 1789, when Samuel Nielsen began as editor, and January 1793, when he died, there are 23 anti-slavery texts printed in his newspaper, including three anti-slavery poems and an anti-slavery narrative. 
During his first nine months as the editor of the newspaper, Nielsen printed six anti-slavery texts, marking a distinct shift from his predecessor. There are no abolitionist texts printed in the paper under Spark during his first year as editor. There were no abolitionist texts printed in the Montreal Gazette in its first year of issue in 1785 or in 1788. However, in 1788, Mepler printed two pro-slavery texts in his newspaper. The Montreal Gazette saw a rise in the number of abolitionist texts from 1789. Six abolitionist texts and two pro-slavery texts were printed in the newspaper that year. In the early 1790s, this trend continued, but to a lesser extent. There were five abolitionist texts, two pro-slavery texts, and five texts about the prospect of giving equal rights and status of citizens to free blacks in the French West Indian colonies printed in the newspaper. The period 1789 to 1793 roughly corresponds to trends in the British newspapers from which the Quebec Gazette derived much of its material. But these years also mark the years that Samuel Nielsen was the editor of the newspaper, and in part the anti-slave trade sentiment layered in the newspaper can be seen as developing under him. An examination of the years immediately preceding and following his proprietorship reinforces the sense that Samuel Nielsen was driving the emphasis given to abolitionist discourses in the Quebec Gazette, and his presentation of these foreign abolitionist texts crafts a newspaper itself in sympathy with these ideals. As others have noticed, Samuel Nielsen's proprietorship of the paper represents a more creative and literary phase in the newspaper's content, and his focus on anti-slavery sentiment could also be understood in this wider context. One of the changes made by Nielsen was to print poems that were more international and to be seen of a higher quality by contemporaries, and his decision to reprint popular and esteemed anti-slavery poetry from the British context could reflect this wider shift. The newspaper editors did not merely reprint these texts. They selected them from other newspapers for reprinting and layered them together to craft a local anti-slave trade sentiment for local readers. The reprinted texts in the newspapers were double-voiced and contained the original point of view, but by reprinting them in the new context and selecting them for inclusion in their newspapers, the editors revoiced these texts. Through this lens, we must see the newspaper editor Samuel Nielsen as one of Canada's first abolitionists against the British slave trade. In the British context, Srividhar Swaminathan's examination of the rhetoric of the 18th century British slave trade debates has shown that the British slave trade debates were part of a shared conversation and both the anti- and pro-slave trade sides were about the formation of British national identity and not just abolition. Debates about the slave trade were also debates about defining the national character and nature of the Britain. Swaminathan finds that both sides of the debate ultimately converged over a discursive terrain that constructed the view of the Britain as commercial, moral and white. And Swaminathan argues that this underpinned an imperial agenda for Britain in the 19th century. In the lower Canadian newspapers, editors selectively reproduced from one side of the British debate and the absence of pro-slave trade texts reflects their construction of an anti-slave trade identity for their newspapers. 
The editorial practice of reprinting from other publications within newspapers was common across the Americas and Europe, for example in Britain. In the 13 colonies prior to the American Revolution, its newspapers were primarily published from locations on the seaboard with access to the Atlantic Ocean, reflecting the need for news and print for compiling the newspapers. It was a shift that would gradually decline after the Revolution as the production of newspapers moved inland. Hannah Barker has shown that, in, that provincial presses in Britain did not just repeat the news when they reprinted texts, they crafted it through reprinting, and the, conte the content of newspapers was shaped by their local public audience. Canadian newspapers circulated anti-slavery sentiment and runaway slave advertisement together, but this was not a contradiction unique to Canadian print culture. Benjamin Franklin printed Quaker anti-slavery tracts anonymously and slave advertisements in Pennsylvania in the Pennsylvania Gazette, which he began printing in 1729. Franklin owned enslaved people and they probably worked at his newspaper and in his home. He was also the president of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society from 1787 and a correspondent of leading international anti-slavery figures such as Granville Sharp. His newspaper printed slave advertisements in a colony that had a strong religious society of friends that were increasingly shaping a coherent anti-slavery identity, but he was still printing slave advertisements in this context and Quakers such as the abolitionist Benjamin Lay subscribed to his newspaper. One item that appears in the London News Summary of the Quebec Gazette on November 1791 is the account of the loss of a slave ship on the Middle Passage. The Middle Passage, of course, refers to the journey across the Atlantic that took enslaved African people from the coast of Africa on ships to the Americas. It was part of the triangular trade that characterised the transatlantic slave trade. An editorial voice, which could belong to Nielsen, it is unclear, revoices the printed news of a slave ship being lost and goes on to criticise the accounts which do not mention the loss of the lives of hundreds of enslaved African people. An African slave ship was lately lost on the Middle Passage. The accounts say, quote, that the men were saved but the ship and cargo lost, end quote. Lest the reader should mistake the nature of the cargo, he must know that it contained 230 of our fellow creatures, found guilty of being born on the coast of Guinea of black parents. The revoicing of the original text creates a shock for the reader, which fixates on the words cargo and men. In the original text, cargo is used to refer to the enslaved people, defining them as property, and the assumption in the accounts is that the men were saved, but this is narrowly defined as the crew of sailors. The editorial commentary invites the reader to feel disgust at this attempt to erase and categorise 230 enslaved African people, fellow creatures, as cargo. The lack of boundary between the news summary and the editorial voice of Nielsen here produces the sense that Nielsen himself could be speaking the framing commentary and that he is inviting his readers in Lower Canada to feel abolitionist disgust at the definition of enslaved African people as property, not people. Marcel Trudel's early discussion of some of the abolitionist texts in the Quebec Gazette and the Quebec Herald in Canada's Forgotten Slaves, originally published in 1960, is still the fullest critical discussion of these texts to date. Trudel argues that the editor of the Quebec Gazette did not provide any local editorial comment when they reprinted foreign abolitionist texts in news summaries, 
and he also notes that he's unable to identify who wrote the abolitionist poems printed in the newspaper and wherever these had Canadian authors. The report of the lost slave ship is not entirely accounted for by Trudel's reading. It was printed in the context of the abolitionist thrust of the Quebec Gazette under Nielsen, and there is ambiguity about whether Nielsen is reprinting the news or providing his own abolitionist commentary on the accounts he had received. What is significant is not whether it was reprinted or not, but that its language exhibits ambiguity about who is speaking and that it has the feel of a local editorial voice. Fleury Meple, similarly crass and anti-slave trade point of view in the Montreal Gazette through reprinting foreign abolitionist texts, but Meple creates a slightly different voice. In the Montreal Gazette, anti-slave trade arguments are more firmly embedded in French revolutionary debates and are printed as part of the extensive coverage of the debates taking place in the French National Assembly. Between August and October 1789, Mepler prints anti-slave trade texts originally printed in British and French newspapers during May 1789 spreading these across the Montreal Gazette for a longer period of three months. This has the effect of presenting these texts as part of an unfolding anti-slave trade debate taking place in France and Britain, and it shows that Mepler provides a heavy coverage of the topic in his newspaper, suggesting that he saw it as an important one to cover. These texts are printed in both English and French, as was usual for political texts in the Montreal Gazette. Mepler achieves a balance between French and British calls to abolish the slave trade by alternating each week between French and British abolitionist texts. The effect of placing these debates under dated headings indicated when these printed texts were originally published in the foreign newspapers is that it provides a sense that these slave trade debates are taking place simultaneously in France and Britain. For example, on the 20th of August 1789, Mepler prints a letter written by La Société des Amis des Noirs in Paris, and on the 27th of August 1789, in the London News section, under the date May the 13th, Mepler prints pieces sent by one of the opponents of slavery in Britain in favour of that misfortunate portion of the human species. The following week, under the title Paris, May the 11th to 25th, Mepler prints texts about the opening of the States General in Versailles on the 5th of May, 1789, including Necker's speech in which he laments the cruelties of the French slave trade and indicates the need to pass modifications that will mitigate it. On the 10th of September 1789, a text in which the Third Estate state their sympathy for the motion of abolishing the French slave trade is printed under the heading Paris 25th of May. Then on the 1st of October, Wilberforce's 12 prepositions laid before the Privy Council are printed in the Montreal Gazette by Mepler in English and French in the London News section, headed with the date May the 16th. The letter from last Société des Amis de Noir in Paris, addressed to those who send deputies to the States General, established in France for the abolition of the slave trade, is printed in a London news summary. This text appears in French to the right-hand side, under the heading, London, 9th of May, Commerce de Noir. The introductory text printed before this letter appears to be written in a voice that comes from a London newspaper. 
The letter suggests that it is likely this issue will be taken up by the National Assembly to seek to destroy the report which has been spread of the French having to in the intention to carry on the slave trade to a greater extent as soon as the British legislature will annihilate it. The commentary suggests the letter is proof that the French will not multiply that shameful traffic. The letter contains the perspective of the French abolitionist group who feel it is hypocritical to proclaim their rights as Frenchmen but exclude enslaved people who are also men and should not extend the same rights to enslaved people in the French Empire. They exclaim, how dare we pronounce the word of rights if we prove by our conduct that we do not look upon them as the same to all men. And they highlight the inconsistency of slavery in the French colonies, given that we say that one man cannot become the property of another. The language printed in the Emile Denoir's letter reads as potentially radical in its presentation of the specialness of French liberty. However, Meple prints this under a London news heading with the original framing text that describes the letter's French anti-slavery sentiment as useful and reassuring for a British audience. This bases the text within a more politically sensitive context, while also enabling Meple to print anti-slave trade sentiment that presents the specialness of French liberty. The week after reprinting material in favour of this, that misfortunate portion of the human species on the 27th of August 1789, Mepler prints texts about the opening of the States General at Versailles, which took place on the 5th of May 1789. He prints the speeches of Louis XVI and his finance minister, Jacques Necher. Necher mentions modifications to the slave trade as part of two changes that will make the assembly immortal. After mentioning that the first is the abolition of the corvi, which required the lower classes to labour on public roads, Necher identifies that some modifications were likewise proposed to be adopted in favour of the slaves in the West Indies. In the same issue of the newspaper, Mepler also prints an, an extract at large from Mr Necher's speech, which concerns the slave trade. There are silences and omissions in the speeches being reported in this issue of the Montreal Gazette. For example, the text does not report on the Keeper of the Seal speech, the Keeper of the Seal spoke next and after him Mr Necher, but we are presented with Necher's speech about the slave trade. In this way, Mepler gives an air of importance to Necher's abolitionist speech by choosing to reprint it. Necher's speech depicts enslaved African people as humans and as an unhappy race of men, that have been coolly considered only as the objects of a barbarous traffic. He places the responsibility for this inhuman treatment of enslaved people, not with the slaveholder or slave trader, but with the French nation and the men of the National Assembly. Men, nevertheless, whom deaf to their lamentations, we crowd, we creep in the holds of vessels in order to convey them to a bondage that awaits them in our islands. Necher closes his speech about the slave trade with two pieces of flattery. First, he appears to praise the British abolitionist effort. A distinguished nation has already given the signal. And then he ties the possibilities for modifications to the slave trade to treating enslaved people as men in the French colonies with the renewed and enlightened sitting of the assembly, capturing the mood of the States General. Necher implies that the Assembly will bestow honour on itself and promote a position, positive legacy for themselves in the midst of an enlightened age. 
by appearing favourable to anti-slave trade measures. He suggests that this is especially the case within the context of the Assembly meeting at an important moment in which its chief's aims, as Necher presents them, were to tackle the abuses of the king and to be seen as reforming and liberating the French government. The Negro's recital, printed in the Quebec Gazette on the 16th of December 1790, is perhaps the first text printed in Lower Canada in which the reader can envisage themselves as part of an imagined community that is expected to be more sympathetic to the suffering of enslaved African people in the British West Indies. This predates the construction of Canada West as a British land of liberty in the mid-19th century slave narrative. The text was first published in London, in Britain, in the Gentleman's Magazine in 1787, as an epilogue to Isaac Bickerstaff's 1768 comic opera, The Padlock, which had music by Samuel Dibden, where it was entitled An Epilogue to the Padlock. In the epilogue, the black slave character Mungo from Bickerstaff's play is imagined as stepping back out in front of the audience at the end of the play and addressing them. Brook and Carey notes that the epilogue is clearly abolitionist and draws on emerging discourses about the rights of man, but that it also contains ameliorationist undertones. He questions how this text could have been read within the context of the wider performances of the padlock, given that the play is not an anti-slavery text, and he notes there is no evidence that this epilogue was ever performed as part of the wider play. Nevertheless, according to Carey's survey of plays, the abolitionist thrust of the epilogue sets it apart from contemporaneous plays, Carey notes that plays tended to overstate their sentimental rhetoric and damage their anti-slavery power, and that they did not play a central role in supporting the political anti-slave trade campaign, or play a key role in the development of anti-slavery rhetoric in 18th century Britain. In the Quebec Gazette, the theatrical context of the text is lost, because the title describing it as an epilogue to Bickerstaff's play is not reproduced. Moreover, the description of the text as the speech of Bickerstaff's character Mungo, Mungo Speaks, is removed, and the Quebec Cosette presents the opening line in standard English rather than non-standard English, as was in the original text. In the Quebec Gazette, the epilogue, divorced from these theatrical references, reads as a piece of verse. It is set out in stanzas, and a new line is introduced as a title to the text. A black is supposed to be introduced to an English audience after an entertainment. The epilogue is different to the poems and political texts reprinted by Nielsen that imagine enslaved people calling for abolitionist sympathy from a foreign and exotic setting. Readers in Lower Canada could have imagined that the setting of this poem in which an unnamed enslaved black persona addresses a British audience and appeals for the abolition of the slave trade was Lower Canada, given that they may have identified themselves as belonging to the three-born British lands that enslaved person addresses. This invites the readers in Lower Canada to imagine they are listening in on an abolitionist speech that an enslaved man is making in front of a small community of English listeners. This group of imagined listeners could represent the British public, parliament or nation, but the terms used throughout are generic, such as English audience and free-born British lands and they could equally refer to any British colonial possession, including Lower Canada. The direct address, I must speak to Britons, Britons then behold, merges the audience of the poem with the role of the reader who also occupies the role of audience. 
In a more general sense, the poem flatters the British national character and appeals to a sense of British specialness in suggesting British people are more susceptible to abolitionist sympathies because of their own love of liberty. The description of the British lands could equally refer to the British American colonies. The enslaved persona suggests his English audience should feel more abolitionist sympathy for enslaved Africans because they are British. My tale in any place would force a tear, but calls for stronger, deeper feelings here. The here referred to in the Negro's recital printed in the Quebec Gazette, the reprinted and edited epilogue text, is the audience in the British theatre, the English audience, and more broadly Britain and its citizens, who are appealed to in the appeal I speak to Britons. The enslaved person appeals to a sense that the British are especially able to feel sentimental sympathy for the enslaved man and the sufferings he relates, or that they should be demonstrating this sympathy, given their love of liberty and sentimental natures. Readers of the Quebec Gazette who were part of the British Atlantic world may have identified themselves as part of a broader British audience for the poem, and they may have seen themselves as an intended audience for the slave's appeal. This is, in, this is suggested in two ways. By the more general appeal to those Britons in British lands outside Britain itself, and in the fact that this poem was reprinted within Nielsen's newspaper within a wider context of anti-slave trade sentiment and sympathy for enslaved African people, and in the context of the argument that enslaved African people are wrongly categorised as chattel rather than men. This reading is reinforced by the sense that through layering foreign and particularly British anti-slave trade texts together in his newspaper, Nielsen crafted an anti-slave trade sentiment for local readers. Dorothy Couchman identifies that between 1788 and 1789, the abolitionist epilogue was reprinted in newspapers in the northeastern USA, for example in Philadelphia and New Hampshire, in the Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser, and the New Haven Gazette. Its appearance in the Quebec Gazette suggests we need to look at how the newspapers in the colonies that would later become Canada participated in a shared Anglo-American abolitionist print culture during this period, Scholars need to push the borders of current studies of transatlantic abolitionism and the black Atlantic world in the late 18th century to include the provinces that would later become Canada and to explore how in specific local contexts they participated in the shared culture of the information highway of abolitionist ideas as well as a culture of slavery and slaveholding. This paper has argued that during the period 1789 to 1793, Two newspaper editors in Lower Canada crafted local anti-slave trade sentiment through reprinting materials from the international slave trade debate. Rather than see these texts as foreign reprints that do not reflect local attitudes about slavery in the wider Americas and the Atlantic slave trade, this paper suggested that through reprinting these texts and layering them together, editors Nielsen and Meppler created particular responses to these debates and excluded pro-slave trade discourses. In the community and business sections of the newspaper, advertisements for enslaved people were part of everyday business, but in the more outward-looking and discursive sections, the editors aligned their community with anti-slave trade arguments. 